Our reading for today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Welcome. Um, before I give the sermon this morning, I want to make just an announcement regarding next week's Thanksgiving service. And so next week, I'm asking all of you to do two things in preparation for our Thanksgiving service. One is I'd like for all of you to send me a picture of something that you are thankful for during this season of lockdown. I know that there are many things that um, you may feel that you've lost or that you're sad about or angry about, but I know that there are other things for which you are thankful. Maybe your child learned to ride a bike this year, or um, maybe you had time to take some family walks um, in the woods. <laughs> um, maybe you had more time at home, so you learned to cook new dishes or picked up a new hobby. Um, send me a picture of something that you are thankful for um, by Wednesday night, um, or if you could just do it today, that would be even better. So just, just something that illustrates something that you're thankful for. And so um, it can be a picture of one for each member of your family, or it could be a picture of your whole family doing something, but just send me something, a picture of something that you're thankful for, and we'll put them all together and we'll show them as a part of our service next Sunday. Secondly, as we do every year for our Thanksgiving service, uh, we wanna have a time where you can all share something that you are thankful for. And like we have been doing for the last few years, uh, we are going to give you a prompt which we're asking you to follow. So this year's prompt is, you're going to say, this is something, uh, you're gonna say, um, X, Y, Z, something, is my grain that has died, but A, B, C is my fruit that I now bear. So something is this my grain that has died, but something else is now my fruit, which I now bear. Um, so think about what has died in your life this year. What are things that you've had to let go or release? And what are the new signs of life that have also been a part of your life this year. Um, for myself, I was thinking something like the discipline of routine studying in the library 
is my grain that is dyed, but the joy of increased creativity in hearing God's word is my fruit that I now bear. So uh, there'll be more details in this Wednesday's word, but think about something that has died and something that has come to life uh, in this season. And, and let's share that um, this coming uh, Sunday. So again, one, please send me a picture uh, today or in the next few days, something that you are thankful for. And secondly, prepare uh, some words that you can share with the congregation regarding something that has died and something else that has come to life. All right, uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for our time together. Uh, and as we now conclude this series of uh, sermons on the Beatitudes, we ask uh, you would once again teach us. And in the hearing and in the understanding, help us to be encouraged and to obey. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the final, uh, the eighth and final sermon in the series of sermons I've been preaching on the Beatitudes. We began with the blessing of the poverty of spirit, and now we're going to conclude with persecution. Poverty and persecution are not your typical ways of thinking about blessing uh, as material prosperity or good fortune. But this is what it is to be blessed according to Jesus. We have also returned to where we began with the kingdom of God. I said in the first sermon that the list of eight Beatitudes forms a kind of delicious uh, blessing sandwich. The first and last Beatitudes have the same blessing and are in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which gets repeated at the end. The kingdom of heaven is God's reign of justice, of peace or shalom, the flourishing of all life. And in the six Beatitudes in between, look to the future. These declarations or these blessings are a present reality, but in the kingdom of heaven, they're also waiting a future fulfillment. It's what happens when God's will is prayed for and fully done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what happens when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake or for the sake of justice. This is a condition or a blessing that no one really wants, right? Who wants to be persecuted, harassed, oppressed, reviled, insulted, bullied, tyrannized? Most of us, most of the time, try to avoid disapproval and we just want to get along with others and be liked. Jonathan Rauch uh, wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly entitled, Let It Be. In it, he tells this story about when someone asked him about his religious commitments. He said, I used to call myself an atheist, but I still don't believe in God. But the larger truth is that it has been years since I really cared one way or another. I'm, and that was when it hit me, an apatheist. That got a chuckle, but the point was serious. An apatheist. Isn't that true of many people today? Many people say they believe in God, but studies indicate that few are really serious about their faith and the practice of their faith. 
For the unbelieving and the uncaring, such as this writer, this was a cause for celebration because he sees genuine religiosity leading toward divisiveness, intolerant fanaticism, and even terrorism. He concludes, a great many Americans apparently care about religion enough to say they are religious, but not enough to go to church. You can call them hypocrites if you like. I say, God bless them, everyone. The apatheist and the mild nominal Christians don't get persecuted. They don't get persecuted. They just get along. I can recall, however, someone I met in college who welcomed persecution. Let's call him Larry. Larry was someone who would come to your small group or to a Christian gathering, and he would get in everyone's face and argue. He would tell you directly, even if he was meeting you for the very first time, that you're going to hell unless you believed in Jesus. Later, as I got to know him a little better, I realized that he also had a kind of a, a martyr complex. He was aware that everyone, or nearly everyone, disliked him and ostracized him, but he thought it was because he spoke the truth and he was being persecuted for it. That may have been a small part of it, but a much larger part of it was the simple fact that he was just obnoxious and people didn't like him. He didn't seem to show any gentleness or grace, and I never got the sense that he was speaking the truth in love or even that he genuinely cared about you and your eternal destiny. He only cared that he was right, that he had the truth, and he was going to hammer you with it. Christians bemoaning their misery or congratulating themselves for suffering for Jesus when they're simply experiencing the natural consequences of being an unpleasant person is not what Jesus is talking about. The blessing comes not simply because you are persecuted, but because you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of justice. Righteousness or justice, as I've mentioned before, is primarily a relational term. It's not about law. It's about relationships. It means living in proper or right relationship with God, with others, with the world, and with yourself. Justice is really just a, a shorthand for loving your neighbors as yourself. When you do that, persecution will be inevitable. When you advocate for justice, when you advocate for your neighbors in need, you are going to go against and antagonize those powers and principalities against those in positions benefiting from the status quo. When you try to live your life rightly, with honesty and integrity, not in some self-righteous way, but in humble and faithful witness, you will invite mockery because your life opposes and exposes the values of the world. It's not that you're looking for persecution in some perverse masochistic way, but persecution will naturally follow. Your right, just behavior will oppose and expose the wrong anti-God ways of the world. Your chastity will oppose and expose the world's promiscuity. Your gentleness 
the world's violence, your contentment, the world's dissatisfaction, your compassion, the world's callousness, your purpose, the world's frivolity. Now we've seen over these eight weeks that the eight Beatitudes follow the same pattern. And it concludes now with verse 10 regarding persecution. However, at the very end, Jesus adds a couple of very important and clarifying sentences in verses 11 and 12. The Beatitudes up to verse 10 were general statements about those who found themselves in a particular condition, those who mourn, those who show mercy, and so on. But in verses 11 and 12, Jesus pivots and speaks directly to the disciples. He says, blessed are you, or are you all, that is the disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He wants them to know, he wants us to know that they are blessed when they are reviled and persecuted and slandered falsely on account of Jesus. Jesus explicitly inserts himself into the conclusion of the Beatitudes. Now, I don't want you to miss, miss this because this for me is really the key to interpreting the entire uh, series of Beatitudes. In verse 10, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In verse 11, Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted on account of me. Do you see what he does here? Now, you can see this more clearly in translations that preserve the same word choice in Greek, such as the NIV. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you because of me. Verse 10, persecution because of righteousness. Verse 11, persecution because of me. Jesus here equates righteousness, that is the justice of God, with himself. Righteousness equals Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples directly that they will be persecuted, not only because of some general form of righteousness or goodness, but because of their particular devotion to Jesus. This is the true righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. It is the righteousness that is rooted in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. So let's be very clear about, about all of this. The reason Jesus was persecuted and the reason his, pers uh, his followers are persecuted isn't because they taught people to be nice or to love their neighbors. Jesus was and is persecuted because he claims for himself what belongs to God and God alone, that is total devotion. It was a scandalous declaration that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, supposedly breaking the Sabbath, but said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He forgave sins, knowing fully well that only God can forgive sins. 
He may have been held in suspicion of sedition by the Romans, but it was a charge of blasphemy, making himself equal with God, for which he was crucified. Jesus is Lord, is the confession and the proclamation of his disciples, for which they will experience similar persecution. And Jesus gave this warning to them in John 15. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, and they do, they will also persecute you. He also warned that at the end of the age in Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me, for my name's sake. Those who follow Jesus will be hated and persecuted precisely because they follow Jesus. His early followers knew all this from personal experience. The Apostle Paul, for example, tells the Corinthians that during his witnessing of Jesus, he lists lashings and beatings and stoning among the ways that he was persecuted. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. In his letter to Timothy, he recounts the various places in which he suffered persecutions and then remarks, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is to be the normal expectation of those who follow Jesus. The first century historian Tacitus, for example, says this about what happened under Emperor Nero. Mockery of all sorts was added to their deaths, that is the Christians' deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero was not the first, and certainly not the last, to persecute Christians. More recently, for example, a Romanian Christian had this to say, during communism, Christians lived under the threat of humiliation, intimidation, joblessness, beatings, torture, interrogation, jail, forced labor, and execution. There was little emphasis on salvation being free because there was no way to hide the cost. Those under persecution, those under certain um, countries, they understand that salvation in Jesus Christ is by grace and grace alone, but they're also very keenly aware of the real physical and temporal costs of following Jesus of declaring their total allegiance to Jesus the Christ. Now, while we must be mindful of and repentant that Christians have also committed and continue to commit some of the most horrendous atrocities and persecutions against other religious people, still, as we've heard last week, in many parts of the world, Christians are persecuted in some of the most severest ways. It's been estimated that since the beginning of the church, 70 million Christians have suffered martyrdom for their faith, with about 65% of those in the 20th century. In the first decade of the 21st century, it's been estimated that 1 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. 1 million Christian sisters and brothers. Some have projected that by the year 2025, over 200,000 Christians will be martyred annually. 
And yet, despite all of these persecutions, Tertullian's words from the third century continues to ring true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Throughout the centuries, the church has generally grown under persecution and has suffered under times of plenty and ease. Again, persecution is not something that is to be sought after, but it does come. And the number of martyrs does not even include the enormous additional numbers of Christians who are ostracized, beaten, tortured, imprisoned for their faith. As American Christians in the 21st century, I know that this is really hard to comprehend. I don't want to minimize whatever sense of persecution or loss that you may have experienced or felt for your faith. Um, for example, one of the parents in our church recently shared about how their five-year-old was asking whether or not he should pray before his meal when he's at school. At home, his entire family prays together before meals, but he was asking if he should do that when he's in school. None of the other kids do it, so he's going to stand out. Will it make him look weird, too religious? Will he be teased? I remember having that same question, but not until I was in high school. I guess kids have to grow up a little bit faster these days. Like most of you, I've had my share of insults and mockery for my faith, but I'm very reluctant to use this word persecution. I've never feared having to go to jail or, for, or being beaten or killed for my faith. I never feared losing my family or being without a community because of my profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But this is the reality in many parts of the world. Pastor Lee in Kenya and Pastor Sung in Kyrgyzstan have both shared how difficult it is for people there to follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus means cutting ties with your family and with your entire village and putting up with ongoing persecution. To pursue Jesus in those places requires a separation of nearly everything and everyone you know. So it's no wonder that so many who start to follow Jesus in those places often recant and return to their old ways. They understandably and often break under the threat, the reviling, the slander, and the persecution. So Jesus knows. He knows how hard it can be. And so he encourages those under persecution and tells them that they are blessed. In fact, he shockingly says, rejoice and leap with joy for such persecution. We think of joy primarily as an emotion to be experienced, but here it is, a command to be obeyed. Rejoice, he says. And he gives us a couple of reasons why we should do that. First, those persecuted for his sake, Jesus says, have a great reward in heaven. Along these lines, he will say later to his disciples in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Whatever we have sacrificed for Jesus, we will receive back a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Similarly, Paul encourages the Corinthians for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. Persecution is difficult, but it is temporary, and there awaits an eternal weight of glory. This is the reward of having been faithful and hearing one day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And James tells us there is a crown of life promised for all who endure and love the Lord. Second, those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake will have the satisfaction of belonging with the company of the prophets and the people of God. Rejoice, Jesus says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prophets like Moses, who was constantly challenged by his people. Samuel, who was rejected by his nation. Elijah, who fled for his life while being hunted by Ahab and Jezebel. Like Elisha, threatened by an army. Jeremiah, thrown into the bottom of a muddy pit. Like Daniel, the victim of slander and thrown into a den of lions. And like John the baptizer, imprisoned and eventually executed for preaching against the king's immoral actions. And here's something that we don't like to admit. Who usually persecutes God's prophets? It wasn't mostly foreign kings and foreign nations and the enemies of God. God's prophets were usually sent to the people of God to clean house, to call the people of God to repentance and back to God. And though some were persecuted by foreign powers, sadly, much of the persecutions that the prophets suffered came from within their own people. It's not just the world that persecutes Christians who follow Christ. The sad part of it is that Christians persecute other Christians. And certainly, we've had more than our share of this in recent years in this divided country. It's been pointed out that the ethics of the early church revolved around a commitment to life that is rescuing infants exposed to the elements and left to die, a commitment to chastity and holding the highest sexual ethics and purity, a commitment to nonviolence and the pursuit of peace, a commitment to social justice and radical care for the poor, a commitment to multi-ethnicity and the welcoming of diversity. When you think about that, it sounds similar to many of the commitments that American churches and Christians have today, but their emphasis tends to be on just a couple of these and not all of them. And in choosing to emphasize one of these commitments, Christians tend to demonize and persecute their Christian brothers and sisters who emphasize the other values. But the early church figured out a way to stay united despite their differences. They learned this from Jesus. Recall that in his inner circle of 12 disciples, Jesus prayerfully and very deliberately chose to include both Matthew, who was a tax collector working for the Roman Empire, and Simon the Zealot, 
someone who was committed to the overthrow of Rome. I heard someone share the other day, it's like Jesus calling Sean Hannity and Rachel Meadow together. Jesus apparently saw the value in having them together. Maybe with him, they could learn to love their enemies in their shared commitment to Jesus Christ as their common Lord. This, it seems to me, is our only hope. Jesus is Lord. He is the righteousness by which we can build right relationships with God and with one another. Jesus says, when you are persecuted because of me, you're in good company. Not because of your sense of right, not because of your interests and commitments to life, to purity, nonviolence, justice, or diversity, as important as these things may be. But when you are attacked on my account, because of your devotion to me and following my ways, that is a sign that you are with the people of God. In Acts 5, there's a story of how some of the apostles were arrested for preaching Jesus. And they were taken to the council and they were beaten and they were told not to speak the name of Jesus again. And yet when they left their presence, they rejoiced. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And they continued to speak and to witness in the name of Jesus Christ. They were wrongly imprisoned and beaten, but they rejoiced. They didn't look for persecution, but they were glad to be associated with Jesus. When you know you are on the side of God, when you know that you are in the company of God's people, you can rejoice even when you are persecuted. Knowing that you are on the side of God, isn't this where we all want to be? We began the series of, uh, on the Beatitudes with blessing. And so let me close today with this story of blessing, uh, a story told by uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. She tells about a time when her father had a, a seizure caused by brain cancer. And at the hospital, different family members took turns standing over her dad so that the examination, the, the room light, uh, wouldn't be too harsh uh, on his eyes. One would uh, stand over him and kiss him on the forehead. Another would uh, put a wet sponge to his lips and so on. They all took turns trying to care uh, for her dad. But Barbara's husband, Ed, he went over to the bedside and instead of doing any of those things, he said something to him and then kneeled down on the floor to fit his head underneath her dad's hands. He then reached up and put his own hand on top of his father-in-law's hand to keep it from slipping off. So he, he sat there with his father-in-law's hand on top of his head and then his hand on top of that to keep it there. And he knelt there while her dad's lips moved. Afterwards, she asked her husband, what was that? And he replied, I asked him to give me a blessing. And then she remarked later, 
that we are able to bless one another is all the evidence we need to know that we have been blessed. That we are able to bless one another is all the evidence we need to know that we have been blessed. You are blessed because you belong to Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that you are blessed simply because you belong to Christ? When you are able to show mercy, when you are able to mourn with others, when you find yourself thirsting for justice, when you want the well-being of those around you, even when others mock you, those are signs that you belong to Christ and that you have been blessed. Blessed of the Lord, yours is the kingdom of heaven. May you live fully into that blessing and bless others. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your declaration that we are blessed. Help us to remember that we are a blessed people because of you. And in that knowledge, in that assurance, help us to bless others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.